You ever heard of the Sea of Galilee? Sure you have. Let me tell you a couple of things about the Sea of Galilee. It, it lies in the northern reaches of the country of Israel. Uh, it's not far from the country of Syria, uh, not far from Lebanon, in the, in the northern part of Israel, in an area right at the base of a, of a plateau that you've heard about known as the Golan Heights. Here's where the Sea of Galilee lies. The Sea of Galilee has the distinction of being the, the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. It's the second lowest lake on the earth. It lies about 700 feet below sea level. And the only body of water, the only lake that's lower than the Sea of Galilee is the Dead Sea, which is a, a 150 or so miles away down in the desert at 1,400 feet below sea level. Um, there you have the Dead Sea, which is so dense, as many of you know, uh, you can float in it. You can't sink in the Dead Sea. So the Sea of Galilee, very low in, in, in elevation, but surrounded by high mountains. And so because of its elevation and because of the topography around it, the mountains that surround it, the Sea of Galilee is very much like a bowl. Uh, the water laying in the bottom of the bowl and the mountains coming up all around it, uh, creating the sides of the bowl. Now, this particular geography creates a situation where when the, when the cold winds, the cold air comes rushing from the Mediterranean Sea, those easterly winds blowing, when they come over those mountains from the Mediterranean, the winds then dip down into the bowl. And because of the low elevation, there's warm moisture-laden air that lies down in that bowl. And when the air comes over the mountains and dips down in, you didn't know you were going to get a meteorological lesson this morning at church, did you? When the, when the uh, cold air dips down in, it creates the perfect scenario for storms to develop very suddenly. They erupt almost out of nowhere. And these storms can be very, very Severe, as severe as they are sudden. And because Jesus spent so much of his time, so much of his life and ministry and his miracles were performed in the towns that are on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he was around this lake a lot. Then when you read the Gospels and you read about his life, you frequently read about these storms as well. Because these storms were a part of Jesus' experience there. You have your Bibles open to Matthew 14. Let me just read to you one quick verse out of Mark chapter 4 where you'll hear some words about one of these storms. Listen to Mark 4 verse 37. It says, and there arose a storm of wind. This is on the Sea of Galilee. There arose a storm of wind and the waves beat into the boat so that the ship or the boat that Jesus was on was now full of water. Literally, it has three and four and five foot seas crashing against that boat, and, and, and it's washing, the water is washing into the boat, so the boat is now uh, beginning to, uh, to sink. Verse 38, Jesus was asleep in the hinder part of the ship on a pillow, and they, the disciples, who, by the way, were mostly fishermen, used to sailing on that 
lake, could handle themselves on the water better than anybody, they woke Jesus up and said to him, Master, do you not care that we are perishing? This is no little breeze on a lake. This is a storm that is, that is about to sink the boat of seasoned fishermen. So these storms can erupt very, very suddenly. Well, such is the case in Matthew chapter number 14 in our text today. We're going to read about one such storm. But before we read the entire text, I want you to take your pen, if you would, and underline one particular sentence in this passage where Jesus is involved with his disciples uh, in a storm. Look at verse 25, Matthew 14 and verse number 25. It says, And in the fourth watch of the nights, between three and six in the morning, Jesus went unto them, here's what I want you to write, walk, or underline, walking on the sea. Would you underline that? Verse 25 says, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now, thankfully, uh, two of the other gospel writers, so a total of three of the four gospel writers, tell us about this particular event, and both Mark and John record this miraculous sea walking as well. Mark 6.48 says, In about the fourth watch of the night, he, that's Jesus, he came to them, here it is again, walking on the water or walking on the sea. John chapter 6 and verse 19 says, Then they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming Near the boat. Matthew, Mark, John, all three of these gospel evangelists record the same miraculous event. Here it is Jesus can walk on water. If you believe that, would you shout amen? Amen. amen. And it's a good thing for Peter that he can. Because in Matthew 14, Peter is out on that same water with him and he prays a prayer on that water. You see it in verse number 30, I believe, where he says, Lord, save me. He called out to him in prayer. We're talking about prayer today. And let me remind you of the definition that we uh, learned last Sunday morning about prayer. It's a really simple one. Here it is. It is that prayer is a conversation with God. You remember that? Prayer, the word prayer comes from two words, which means when I take what's on my heart, the burden of my heart, and I direct it to God. It is a conversation with God. And in these weeks together, as you know, we are considering the four motivations of prayer. Uh, last week, we learned that we ought to pray. Remember asked, answering the question, why, are we, why should we pray? Last week, we said we should pray because we have been invited to pray. We learned this from Psalm 95. Here's the invitation. Come, let us come into the presence of the Lord. And if we had no other reason to pray, no earthly reason to pray, no practical reason to pray, no life experience reason to pray, if none of those things existed, it's enough that we should pray because we have been invited into the presence of the Lord. But we do have plenty of reasons that we need to pray. And today we're going to think about one of those, write it down, then we'll talk about it. Today we're going to learn that I pray because I can't make it on my own. I pray because I can't make it on my own. Think about that statement for just a second. I just said it, but is that something that you would say as well? Is that something that you would verbalize? I pray because I can't make it on my own. How does that settle with you? 
Here's another way to say it. I pray because I'm needy. I pray because I'm helpless. I, I pray because I am dependent. How does that settle with you? And by the way, these are all childlike characteristics, aren't they? I'm helpless, I'm dependent, I'm needy, I can't make it on my own. These are all the kinds of things that describe children. You know, children don't mind asking for help when they know that they need it. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I raised the most independent, strong-willed child in the world. They never thought they needed help with anything. I get that many, many children are independent and strong-willed, but when a child knows that they need help, they don't mind asking for help. When a little toddler wants to get something up on a high shelf that they can never reach on their own, or when they want to see what's on the kitchen counter, they would have no problem saying, hold you, hold you. And we're like, no, I'll hold you. And they're like, yeah, hold you. No, you hold me. No, I hold you. Hold you. But they don't mind asking to be held because they know they don't have any hope of getting what they want to reach without our help. Every teacher knows that in those early educational years, first grade, second grade, all those elementary years, those children eagerly ask for help all the time because they're excited to learn and they're glad to be in school and they, and they know they don't know a lot and they're asking for help. When they get into middle school, a little less, right? And then Oftentimes, by the time they reach high school, they are too cool for school, and so they don't often ask for help then. And, and certainly, as we grow bigger and stronger and older and more mature, we become more capable, of course, and we like to think, as we become adults, we like to think that we outgrow any kind of neediness at all. After all, we're not children anymore. I can manage my life pretty well. I can make things happen as they need to happen. I can pull it off. I can figure it out. After all, I'm not a child anymore. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3. He says, Truly I say unto you that unless you turn and become like, say the word with me, children. Unless you repent or turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the message of the text for us is clear today. We pray because, like children, uh, we can't make it on our own. Let's read the passage. Follow along as I read Matthew chapter number 14, beginning in verse number uh, 22. The Bible says, and straight away, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side of the lake. Now, they're on the Sea of Galilee. He wants them to sail away to the other side. Without him, he would send the multitudes away. Verse 23, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart, alone, to pray. And when the evening was come, Jesus was there on the mountaintop alone. But the boat was now in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, the, the Lake of Galilee. The boat was now in the midst of the sea. It was being tossed with waves 
for the wind was contrary. One of those sudden storms had arisen on the lake. And in the fourth watch of the night, again, between three and six in the morning, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto those disciples who were in the boat on the lake that was being tossed by waves. He went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, imagine a shadowy figure emerging out of the fog and through the clouds and in the dark night, in the darkest part of the night, suddenly they see this figure approaching their boat. They are troubled, terrified, the word means. You would have been as well. And they thought it's a ghost. They said it's a spirit and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered Jesus and said, Lord, if it be thou, or since it's you, bid me to come unto thee on the water. It's a radical request. Let me come walking out on the water to you. And Jesus said, come on. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, Peter became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and called him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Can I take a quick survey? Anybody a little bit bothered that Jesus said to Peter, O thou of little faith? Because I think it took a tremendous faith to even step down out of the boat. What did Jesus mean? We'll talk about it in a minute. Verse number 32, and when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. And then they that were in the ship came and knelt down before Jesus saying, of a truth, thou art the son of God. Let's talk about this for just a minute. This experience of the disciples on the boat in the middle of one of these sudden and severe storms that can rise on the Sea of Galilee is reflective of something in our lives. And I want you to write it down. It is reflective of our daily grind. The disciples' experience is not unlike the daily grind of our own experience. Let me, uh, let me explain to you what I mean. Look at Matthew chapter 14 and verse number 13, backing up from our text just a bit. You'll notice in verse 13 that Jesus is looking for some solitude. He's looking for some rest. Verse 13 says, when Jesus heard of it, he departed from where he was by a ship into a desert place apart. Now, let me help you understand just a little bit what's going on here. The Sea of Galilee is, in fact, uh, not a sea like you would think of uh, the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. The Sea of Galilee is a lake. Uh, its, its dimensions are, it is about eight miles wide in the middle at the widest point. It's about 10, maybe 11 miles long uh, uh, north to south. And so when the Bible talks about sailing across the sea, they were always sailing from town to town, these towns that line the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
And so if you can imagine my fingers representing the Sea of Galilee, they were always sailing here, just from this point to this point, right along the shore. So if you were standing on the shore, you could see the boat the entire width of that lake. It's only at that northern end about five miles wide, and and so you could see the, the boat. Well, Jesus is in one place. Ministry is busy. It's happening. He is looking for a place of solitude, so he gets in a boat, and he begins to sail across the lake. But the people on the shore can see where he's sailing to. So the Bible tells us that they run along the shore. They're following his boat as he runs along the shore. In fact, uh, Mark gives us a little bit of, um, of an explanation about what's been happening and why Jesus and the disciples were looking for some solitude. Uh, let me turn over to Mark chapter 6. You can turn as well if you'd like. But look with me at Mark chapter 6 and verse number 31. If you want to know how busy Jesus was and how busy his disciples were, Mark 6 and verse 31 says, uh, And Jesus said unto them, come, uh, come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest for a while. And For there were many who were coming and going, and they, that's the disciples, had no leisure so much as to eat. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been busy? If you have, say amen. Have you ever been really busy? Have you ever come home at the end of a busy day and said, I didn't even have time for lunch today. It was so busy. It just felt like I couldn't even just get up and get a breath. I was just work, 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 work. This is what's happening in the experience of Jesus. There's so many people coming to receive ministry from him, to find healing and help and, and salvation from him. There's Mark 6, 36, or Mark 6 says that they're coming and going, and the, he and the disciples don't even have time to eat. So in Matthew chapter 14, he says, let's go and get into a desert place. So they get in the boat, they begin to sail across to the other side of the lake. Well, the people follow him, verse number 13 says. I'm back in Matthew 14. Verse 13 says, the people heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Now, you might think that Jesus would say, because surely the disciples probably felt, felt this and maybe even verbalized it, tell those people to leave us alone for a little while. Can we get a few minutes, please? Well, that's not the heart of Jesus, right? And so these people follow him, and as soon as he lands in the, in the different location on the, on the northern shore, it says in verse 14, Jesus went forth, that is, off the boat, and saw a great multitude he was moved with compassion toward them, and so he began to heal their sick. People continue to come. By the thousands, they're coming. And Jesus is now healing the sick. That means the disciples are working as well. And so after a long day of ministry, they try to find a quiet place. When they get there, there's more people, and the ministry continues, and they're tired. Verse 15, the evening comes, it's time for dinner, and his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place, that means there's nothing around, the time is now past, it's late, it's dinner time, send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves uh, victuals, the King James says, buy themselves food. Would you send these people away, maybe at dinner time we can have some rest. Verse 16, but Jesus said, they don't need to go anywhere. You feed them. (laughs) 
have to tell you, I love this. They're so tired already. They're trying to get rid of these people. And then Jesus says, oh, it's dinner time? Great. Let's have a, let's have a party. You feed them. And they said, we don't even have the food to feed them. How in the world would we ever feed them? You know the story, the multiplication of the fish and loaves, right? One little boy brings his lunch, a few uh, fish and and a few loaves, and, and he offers it to Jesus, and Jesus multiplies it. Then the people sit down in the grassy field, and the disciples have to now become waiters in this impromptu restaurant, and they're now feeding what is Upwards of twelve to 15,000 people that are fed by this miraculous multiplication. But they're walking and feeding and working and working. They've been working all day. And then they try to get away and the people come and they have to keep working. And then it's dinner time and maybe they'll rest. But no, we're going to feed them now. And now we're working and working. And now everybody's been fed. And Jesus says, we'll go get the leftovers. And now they're getting the leftovers. And so that they get 12 baskets full of leftovers. And finally the healing is done. And finally the ministry is finished. And finally the people are fed. And finally he's going to send them away. But the Bible says in verse number um, 21. No, no, I'm sorry. Verse number 22. The Bible says straightway Jesus commanded his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him on the other side while he sent the multitude away. Are you feeling for these disciples yet? Work all day, no time for lunch, here comes more, serve those people, oh, let's feed them, oh, now let's take up extra, and oh, by the way, get in the ship and now go row to the other side of the boat. I'll send the people away while you go. Well, verse 23 says, he sent the multitudes away, he went up into the mountain, verse number 24, but as would be the case at the end of a long day, after a long, busy ministry season, when they're very, very tired, now a storm arises and they begin to row against the wind and the work gets harder and harder and harder. And so after a long day, in the middle of a busy week, in the middle of a busy season, they now encounter a fierce storm. And we know from what the Bible text tells us that they row against this wind for at least nine hours. By the time you get to the end of chapter 14, the disciples are off course. They're overwhelmed. They're outmatched by the storm. Can I ask you a question? You ever been there? Overwhelmed, outmatched, feeling like everything is coming against you and you don't know how you're going to press on? The truth is, when we get in that kind of condition, would you agree with me? It's a good time to pray. Amen? It's a good time to pray. Here's the sad fact, though. Oftentimes, we don't pray in those moments because we can doubt the goodness of God. We wonder if he even knows what's happening with us, if he's even aware of how difficult our situation has become. Does he even care? And the good answer is that he does, in fact, care. In fact, you see this in Matthew chapter 14. Write this down. You you can learn this lesson of his care and his compassion when you see his gracious appearance. Christ's gracious appearance in this passage is described in verses 23 and 25. Again, we'll go to Mark here to fill in some of the gaps for us, but look at 
Matthew 14 and verse 23, it says, When he had sent the multitudes away, the disciples are now in the boat. They're rowing across the lake. The storm comes up. Verse number 23 says, He's on the mountaintop in the evening time. He's there alone praying. Once again, let me read to you from Mark chapter number 6. Listen to what the Bible says in verse number um, 47. Mark 6 and verse 47. It says, and when the evening was come, the ship was now in the midst of the sea. That is, rather than staying on the shoreline, they've been driven three to four miles out into the middle of the lake. Jesus is on the mountaintop. Look at verse number 48, Mark 6 and 48. And Jesus saw them toiling in rowing. Everybody that's listening, I want you to shout amen. Amen. Here you have in this boat... 12 worn-out disciples, tired from a long season of ministry, tired from a long day of work, tired from getting in a boat and rowing, tired from fighting a storm. They're afraid they're going to die. Everything is against them. It's in the dark of night, in, in, in 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 the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus seems so far away. And yet, Mark 6, 48 says, he saw them toiling. I want you to know that you've never encountered a difficulty. You've never found yourself worn out, overwhelmed, outmatched. You've never found yourself in the middle of a storm when Jesus didn't see everything that was going on in your life. He knows all about it. And in fact, the Bible tells us that he is on this mountain. He sees them from that mountaintop. He knows that they're struggling. And what's Jesus doing on that mountaintop? He's praying. And if Jesus is on the mountaintop praying and he sees his disciples struggling, do you think maybe Jesus was praying for them? Has it ever occurred to you that in the midst of your difficulty, Jesus is praying for you? In fact, look at what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 25. It says, therefore, he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them that he prays for you. I've often said to people when there's a struggle going on in your life, if and they'll share with me their struggle. I'll say, hey, is it okay with you if I share that with my wife, share it with Tracy, so that she can pray for you because you want her praying for you. She's God's pet. You want her praying for you. But how much greater is it than, than a great prayer warrior praying for you if you know that the great intercessor, Jesus himself, is lifting your need? In fact, the Bible says that this is what he lives eternally to do, is to make intercession for us. Well, Jesus is praying for them. He sees them struggling, the Bible says. Back in Matthew chapter 14 and verse number 25, he doesn't just see them from a distance and pray for them. But verse 25 tells us, as we marked earlier, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came unto them walking on the water. 
Jesus comes walking. I mentioned earlier a shadowy figure coming out of the darkness, approaching the boat. Remember, they would have had lanterns swinging from the mast, and and the light would have been casting shadows through the fog across the white capping waves, and they're hanging on and belling water and trying to hoist the sail or bring the sail down and get the oars. And they're working as hard as they can, and they look up, and and the light, the lantern swings, and there's a splash of light crosses the wave, and Somebody was there, but now it's dark again. And then, and then the light swings again. There he is again. And then, the, and then it goes dark again. And they are scared to death. Somebody's coming. It's got to be a spirit walking on the water. And they begin to cry out for fear. And Jesus says, and by the way, when we read in verse number 27, be of good cheer as I be not afraid. I, I think that when we think, Jesus, when we think of Jesus speaking, We often think that he spoke in subtle tones, very softly and quietly, like Jesus said, My sons, be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. This is in the middle of a storm. I've been in one of these storms, by the way, on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. It is frightening, and it is loud, and the wind is howling. Jesus didn't go, My children, be not afraid. He said, Hey, guys. I just woke up three people back here. Hey, guys, calm down. It's me. And suddenly there's this moment. It's, it's Jesus walking. And this is where it gets interesting in the text. In fact, this is where we learn to pray. Write this down. We're going to talk about it. Peter's childlike prayer. And it is. There is a boyish, adventuresome confidence in Peter's Request. Verse 28, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, remember they're yelling, it's loud, Lord, if it's you, can I do what you're doing? Can I walk on the water? Can I come to you? Now, by the way, I don't think Peter's being flamboyant. I don't think he's trying to show up the other disciples. Here's what I think he's thinking. You know what? If I'm in a boat on a stormy lake and Jesus is standing on the water on a stormy lake, I'd rather be out of the boat with Jesus than in the boat without Jesus. That's pretty good theology, right? If you're out there, can I come to you? And I imagine Jesus went, yeah, come on. And so so imagine this, Peter, now remember the boat's just rocking and Peter climbs up on the side of the boat, sits on on the edge Halfway, probably more than halfway, expecting that he's going under. And he lands solid, as solidly, if y'all believe your Bible, shout amen. Amen. He lands as solidly as I just landed on this platform. Looks around, there's Jesus, just come on. And the Bible says in verse number 28, he climbs out of the, he asks, verse number 29, he climbs down out of the ship and he begins to walk on the water to go to Jesus. He takes a few steps on the water. Not just in the water, not dog paddling, not swimming. He's walking on the water until verse 30. And something in Peter's brain conflicts with the faith in his heart. And he thinks to himself, I'm not supposed to be able to walk on water. Years ago, when I received my um, Nowy uh, 
dive, uh, scuba dive certification, my trainer said to me, there will come a moment when you are diving uh, underwater, 30, 60 feet, whatever, underwater, and, and you're breathing like this is normal. He said, just be prepared for it. There will come a moment when you will panic. You will want to panic because something in your brain will say, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be down here. Fish live down here, not you. And he said, you have to be ready in that moment to, to fight through that panic or else you will panic. Your brain will drive you to the surface if you don't control it. Peter, Peter landed on that water. He began to take some steps to Jesus. He sees the wind blowing. He sees the waves all around him. And the Bible says, look at it, verse number 30. When he saw the wind boisterous, he became afraid. And beginning to seek, he prayed, Lord, save me. A childlike three-word prayer, Lord, save me. And I want us to learn today to pray childlike prayers. Here's how we do it. Write them down real quickly. Number one, if you want to pray childlike prayers like Peter prayed, begin by praying helplessly. Pray helplessly. Say, Pastor, I, I want to learn how to be a, a person who builds a life of prayer. Then learn to pray in a way that acknowledges your absolute dependence Upon the Lord. Listen to the childlike cry of Peter. Lord, save me. There, there's no profound, articulate invocation. He's sinking fast. And Peter's not saying, as he begins to sink, Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, Lord of the Trinity. nothing profound about this. Ah! That's the way he's praying. He's crying, Lord, as he's going down. This is not a slow descent into the depths. See, sometimes I, I think that we believe that God would have answered our prayers or is more likely to answer our prayers if we can earn an answer by articulating a profound prayer in King James English. That if we can earn his answer with our performance of prayer. No. God likes it when his children call out to him in childlike faith. We won't take the time to turn and read it. You can read it later. Many of you know the parable already, but Luke chapter 11, that famous chapter where Jesus taught us how to pray. He prays in Luke 11, what we call the model prayer. He then, his disciples say, teach us to pray. The first thing that Jesus says in Luke 11, in response to their request, teach us to pray, Jesus told a parable. It's called the parable of the, of the friend, or the friend who came at midnight, the importunate friend. Here's what happens. Jesus says there was a friend who, there was a man who had a friend come to him at midnight. He arrived at his house late. In that Middle Eastern hospitality, when it doesn't matter when they arrive at your house, you put food before them. And so this friend arrives at his, at his house at midnight. He has no food to put before him. And so he goes to his neighbor's house, knocks on the door, says, please give me three loaves of bread. I've had my friends arrive. I've got to show them hospitality. I must give them food. Can I get three loaves from you so that I can give it to my friends? And 
on the inside of the house, this neighbor is already in the bed. And you remember the story. Jesus says that he calls from within, go away. I can't get up and give you bread. I'm already in the bed. My kids are in the bed. What are you doing knocking on my door at midnight? Leave. And the friend keeps knocking. He keeps on pounding. Please give me food. I've got to have food for my friend. And if you don't give me food, I have nowhere else to go. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, because of his importunity, and the word means his shamelessness, then the friend will rise and give him everything that he needs. Here's what he says. that God answers our prayers when we come to him shamelessly dependent shamelessly helpless. God, if you don't answer this prayer, I have no hope. God, if you don't solve this issue, I have nowhere to go. God, if you don't come through, nobody else is gonna come through. You are my only hope. That is the kind of helpless prayer that God will answer. So often we pray with a plan B in mind. God, I'm asking you to do this, but if you don't, I'll work it out over here. God likes it when we pray helpless, childlike prayers. Matthew chapter number 15. In fact, you're in chapter 14. Look at Matthew 15, verse number 25. Another another example of a helpless kind of prayer where Jesus is approached by a Gentile woman whose daughter was very sick. And she came in verse 25. This Gentile woman said, Lord, help me. Same, Same prayer that Peter prayed, Lord, save me. She says, Lord, help me. Help my daughter. And Jesus said, it's not meat for me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. He's talking about, I've come to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. And she said, Lord, that's true, verse 27. But the dogs eat the crumbs which, fail, uh, which fall from their master's table. And Jesus said, man, what faith. What childlike faith. She's simply saying, I just want a crumb of your grace. How do I pray childlike prayers? I pray those when I pray helplessly. God, you're my only hope. Number two... How do we pray childlike prayers? Go back to Matthew 14. Listen to Peter's prayer. He says in verse number 28, or verse number 29, Lord, save me. Here's the second way to pray childlike prayers. Pray specifically. Pray specifically. Peter prayed specifically. Can you imagine Peter praying vague, generalized prayers in this moment? Can you imagine Peter saying, Lord, my spirit is dampened. (laughs) Lift me to new heights according to your will. No. Lord, I have one need. Save me. It was a specific prayer. When we pray, we should ask with specificity. How many times has Jesus instructed us, ask and you will receive? Ask specifically. It's a beautiful thing about children is that they don't beat around the bush. They don't pretend. They don't hedge. They just ask specifically. James chapter 4 and verse number 2 says you don't have because you don't ask. You have not because you ask not. Luke eleven nine. 9, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. When you pray, pray specifically. One of the greatest things you can do to build your faith is to record answered prayers. But here's the problem. Some of us have never prayed specifically enough that we would even know when the answer came. We pray such general prayers, we just say, God is good. 
But we don't know specifically how God has answered our prayers because we haven't prayed specifically. When you pray, learn to ask your Father specifically for what you need. Pray helplessly, pray specifically, and then thirdly, lastly, when we pray like children, we should pray in Jesus' name. Peter does this in verse number 29 when he looks into the eyes of Jesus with desperation and he says, Lord, Lord Jesus, save me. We pray in Jesus' name. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 13, whatsoever you ask in my name. Now, I don't mean simply tagging on all of our prayers these words in Jesus' name as if that's a magic wand. And if I say in Jesus' name, then hocus pocus and everything will be done. No, to pray in Jesus' name means to approach God in the authority of Jesus, right? In the boldly, like we learned last week, that I can come to him in Jesus' name. That because of Jesus, I can pray. Um, In his book, uh, The Praying Life, Paul Miller writes about this approaching in Jesus' name. Um, by describing it as a, as a beggar approaching a palace, a castle. And he's, he's coming all halt and broken with all of his dirty rags and, and all of the guards at the gate stiffen and hold their javer, uh, javelins and their spears and they're protecting the king. And this beggar shuffles up to the gate and says, I, I want to see the king. I, I need an audience with the king. And they don't move. And then he says, I come to the king in the name of my friend Jesus. And at the moment they hear the name Jesus, they step back and the drawbridge lowers and the gate rises and he is ushered into the presence of the king. To come in the name of Jesus means that I understand I can't even lift my head to God if I don't come in Jesus' name. I don't have the right to talk to God Almighty if I don't talk to him because of Jesus. And so I pray in Jesus' name, but it also means not only do I understand he is my approach, but it means that I take my prayer and I surrender it to his will. To say that I'm praying in Jesus' name means that I'm praying for Jesus' will to be done. I'm praying for Jesus' glory to be accomplished. I can't line out a bunch of secular, carnal fleshly prayers, God give me this, that, and the other in Jesus' name, and I have it. James, the same one who said, you have not because you ask not, went on to say, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss to consume it upon your own lusts. You pray for silly stuff, he said. You see, Jesus taught us how to pray this way. What we want to happen surrendered to the will of God to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. So, Lord, save me is to pray in Jesus' name, surrender to his will, and for Jesus' glory. This is what it means to pray childlike prayers. And all of us need to remember that the first childlike prayer that we pray is exactly verbatim the words that Peter prayed. Lord, Save me. Because salvation, a relationship with God, a life of prayer begins with one prayer. It is the prayer where I acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior. 
and I call out to him in childlike faith, acknowledging that I cannot save myself, but I call out to him in childlike faith, asking him to save me. Loved ones, please hear your pastor this morning. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're struggling with, whatever the, whatever the storm is that has arisen in your life, Jesus knows it, he sees it, and he's praying for you. And by his grace, he will rescue you for his own glory according to his perfect will as you call out to him to do just that.